Today's scripture reading is from Obadiah 1, 1 through 21. Please read with me the verses in bold. The vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom, we have heard a report from the Lord and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in your left lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau. And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Timon, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy, and the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble, they shall burn them and consume them. Is there more? Yeah. <laughs> I don't have any more. Hang on. Those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau, and those of Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath 
and the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad shall possess the cities of the Negev. Savior shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. That was a lot to read, and so um, it's a lot to read for anyone, and it's a lot to read of a text you're probably not uh, very familiar with, but uh, thanks for reading that together with us this morning. Uh, I just want to point out to you, if, if you haven't noticed already, uh, Brad and I came out uh, in uniform. Uh, we <laughs> are wearing very, something very similar, and it, if you just look back to the kitchen, it matches the curtains, too. <laughs> Uh, there are two of us uh, pastors at uh, Grace Sacramento, Brad and myself, who have the privilege of pastoring uh, here at this church. Uh, my name is Daniel, as I mentioned, and we are, uh, and if you are, if you and I are meeting for the first time, that is my name. Uh, I want to just take a moment to acknowledge uh, Brad this morning and his accomplishments a few weeks ago. Uh, again, if you're not familiar, he qualified for the NorCal CrossFit competition in Sacramento. I know uh, he has the beauty and the brains. Uh, you know, again, you know that last summer he finished his doctorate, but now he has the brawn to go with that. <laughs> the complete package. Uh, again, if you're wanting, and I just wanted to point out, if you're wanting and have time after the service, you wanna, I wanna invite you to come and watch a four minute clip of Brad in action. <laughs> and so that'll be uh, after the service. And so. I thought I'd mention that. Uh, don't be thinking about that while I'm preaching. <laughs> but welcome to Grace Sacramento. Uh, thanks for joining us this morning. If you're joining us for the first time or the first time in a long time or you're here every week, uh, there are lots of wonderful happenings at Grace Sacramento. Kids to youth to adults, uh, women, I highly encourage you to connect um, with the people of Grace through these uh, various uh, platforms that we have to connect. And uh, Grace Group is just getting one of those uh, places that you can do that. Um, can I pray for us? Well, thank you for gathering us here again. Lord, thank you for these weekly reminders of how great our sin is and reminders of how much greater your grace that covers that sin. Thank you for gathering us again, Lord, to come to sit at your feet and to listen and to learn and to fall in love all over again. God, I pray that this would be such an occasion that we would hear the word of God and that we would fall in love with a a God who shows steadfast love to a thousand generations. Lord, thank you for the word that teaches us and admonishes us and encourages us. Lord, thank you for the sharpness of the words that tells us where we fall short. And we thank you, Lord, for the words of encouragement that picks us right back up and reminds us, Lord, that, you, that we are your children. Father, as we look at Obadiah once again, I pray that you would give us insight into your word. God, open the eyes of our heart that we would hear what you have to say. 
This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, we are in the midst of a 12-week sermon series on the minor prophets that we're calling Divine Intervention. This morning we are on minor prophet number four. Hosea, Joel, Amos, and this morning, Obadiah. If you've missed any of the ones previous, you can catch either of uh, Stephen Mockford or Brad Carpenter, who did a fantastic job preaching through some very difficult books. But this morning, we are in the book of Obadiah. It's a pretty obscure book in the Old Testament. I'm not going to ask you if you've ever read Obadiah before, much less heard of the book of Obadiah before. You may have a difficult time this morning locating the book of Obadiah in your Bible. You can thumb your way forwards and thumb your way backwards and miss it on both turns because of the 12 minor prophets, Obadiah is the most minor of them all. It is the shortest of the minor prophets. And no, not a Daniel Yoon kind of short but the shortest in length. Again, we read 21 verses this morning, and again, you read the whole book. It's only one chapter long, 21 verses in all. In fact, the book of Obadiah is the shortest of all of the books of the Old Testament. Having said that, I cannot guarantee a short sermon. Who is Obadiah? There's not a lot we know about Obadiah other than his name. I'm inclined to think that just by his name, maybe he was Texan. Perhaps his brother's name was Obahia. Oh, man. Let me keep going. His, his name appropriately uh, is translated servant of Yahweh, a common name. There are something like 12 other Obadiahs in the Old Testament, but perhaps none who can be identified with this particular prophet. The dating of the book is difficult too. According to scholars, it could have been written as early as the 8th century BC and as early as the 3rd. We don't know. But what we do know is that Obadiah was a prophet a servant of Yahweh who was given the responsibility of being a spokesperson for God. And you may be asking at that moment, what is a prophet? A prophet in the Old Testament was an ambassador of sorts. He was called on by God. And again, the call of God was what gave a prophet his legitimacy. They would never speak on their own authority. Again, whatever they prophesied would always come to pass. They would deliver the message of God himself rather than a message of their own. And so I think a prophet's primary responsibility or job was twofold, and I have that here, uh, two things. One, to foretell. They had been called to communicate the revealed word of God. They would foretell the will of God to the people in hopes that they would repent, trust in Yahweh, and fulfill their covenant obligations. In other words, they were called to preach and teach and encourage and admonish the people of God to live according to the word of God. 
They reminded Israel to be steadfast in keeping the statutes that God had given them to follow. So if God had given them the law, the prophet told them to live according to that law. But the other job of a prophet was to foretell. They would be a mouthpiece to pronounce oracles or prophecies, both of judgment and of salvation. They would foretell of events that would come upon Israel as well as the surrounding nations, events that had yet to occur. So not only are the prophets looking back at the law and telling the Israelites how to follow it, but they're looking forward and predicting the future and saying, this is what will happen if you don't live according to the law. The book of Obadiah is primarily a pronouncement of judgment upon a nation called Edom. The nation that bordered Judah just to the south. They were a constant thorn in the side of Israel and Judah. The land of Edom is characterized by red sandstone cliffs that rise to heights more than 5,000 feet above sea level. You see the pictures, you can see the land of Edom and the mountainous terrain that occupy the central parts of, of Edom. It's pretty magnificent. If you're wondering where this is, it's, uh, this ancient Edom is situated in the modern day kingdom of Jordan in the Middle East. This area includes the famous site of Petra, so famous that you might have caught a glimpse of Petra in some famous movies. One, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Or how about Transformers, Revenge of the Fallen? Or The Mummy Returns? So why a pronouncement of judgment on Edom? The background of the book has its roots in the birth of twins, twin brothers, Esau, and Jacob, born to Isaac, Isaiah, I'm sorry, born to Isaac and Rebekah. Um, again, if you look at Genesis verse 20, uh, chapter 25, verses uh, 19 and on, it says, these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's sons. Abraham, who was the father of faith, fathered Isaac. And Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padam Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. And the children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? And so she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. And two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Have you figured out who Edom is? Who are the Edomites? They are the descendants of Esau. The descendants of Jacob are the Israelites. The descendants of Esau are the Edomites. And so in some way, they are related to one another. You may remember the story of the twins, Jacob and Esau. And as you might recall, the time when probably as a teenager, Esau comes storming in from hunting in the fields, exhausted and famished. 
And Esau sells his birthright to Jacob, his younger brother, for a bowl of lentil soup. In verse uh, 29 of chapter 25, once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to, and again, as a teenager would say, I'm about to die. (laughs) Of what use is a birthright to me? And Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Esau says, let me eat some of that red. And again, in the Hebrew, it's the word Adam. It's let me eat some of that red stuff. And that word Adam, right, it's, it sounds, again, the author is playing on these words of red stuff and perhaps the red hair that covered uh, Esau's body. And you think about uh, where the Edomites live in the red cliffs of the rocks. And so rightly so, his name was called Edom. I'm giving you lots of backstory to Obadiah, lots of the uh, historical significance in this pronouncement of uh, destruction on Edom because the story of the twins plays a major role in the book of Obadiah. For you see, as one author puts it, the book of Obadiah is in fact a covenantal lawsuit against Edom for its violation of fraternal relations. Why such a harsh judgment on Edom? Because... They were brothers. And as brothers, they should have been watching out for each other. But that's not what Edom did. There were areas of Edom that contained parts uh, fit for cultivation, but these are not what gave uh, Edom its importance. The real importance of Edom was, one, it was situated along an important trade route between Syria and Egypt in the south, And they were able to get rich on collected tolls on this route. Or you think about Edom, they possessed natural strength and security. As mentioned, the central area is characterized by these sandstone cliffs of 5,000 feet above sea level. And they were uh, fortified against their enemies. Some say because of where they were situated, I mean, it sounds like a great spot. Um, Twelve. Some scholars say twelve could defend Edom against any army, any army attack. Because, again, through the, the, the entrance of Edom, again, right where Petra is, only a, a few soldiers can go in at a time. So you can imagine the 12 guarding the, the nation of Edom easily. So the Edomites were secure in their stronghold, Again, to work your way to the more lush areas of Edom, you had to enter through this narrow, rocky terrain called Petra. And again, if you had a million-man army, you could, uh, have to, you'd, have, you'd have to enter it uh, one person at a time. So why the charge against Edom? What had they done? What was happening during this time? In verses 1 through 9, Obadiah details the fall of Edom. God would bring judgment on her because of her overriding and offensive sin of pride. 
In verse 3, the pride of your heart has deceived you, who, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. They trusted in their riches, their security, their allies, their wisdom, everything other than God. The roots of pride is saying that we can do without God. And there are many ways in which this expresses itself even for us today in our personal life, in our family life, in our business, our health, or a dozen other ways. We imagine a life without God. And so from a human perspective, it's hard to imagine a safer spot than where Edom and its capital city of Petra laid. So it's not difficult to assume such words from lofty lips, who can bring me down to the ground? Pride will be Edom's downfall, but it'll be God who brings them down. When you read through the book of Obadiah, you get the sense of the sovereignty of God, not just in the bringing down of Edom and this mighty nation, but that God would do it through the nations. I mean, it's interesting, in verses 1 and 2, God calls the nations and says, well, here's Edom, feel free to attack it. God is sovereign over the other nations, Assyria and Babylon and Egypt, and certainly, God was sovereign, controlling these secular governments in attacking Edom. The Lord has sent a messenger among the nations to stir them up to war against Edom, that God would do it through the nations. He uses pagan nations to accomplish his purposes. God used Egypt to pre uh, preserve and proliferate the nation of Israel over 400 years before they would possess the promised land. God used the hard-hearted uh, Pharaoh to display his greatness and power. He surrounded the nations to chasten uh, chase Israel with, uh, na uh, when the nation fell into sin and disobedience. And certainly, God can use other nations to punish Edom. And verses 1 through 9 is a pronouncement of sin, of pride, of Edom. Verses 10 through 14, I'm going through this really quickly, and I think I... Uh, I could spend uh, 30 more minutes if that's okay. <laughs> or I might just take Brad's turn next week, uh, Jonah. You don't need to hear about Jonah, so we'll just do another week of Obadiah. Uh, they trusted in, their, uh, in themselves, their, their pride. And in verses 10 through 14, um, Obadiah addresses a specific sin of Edom. The text tells us that they will be severely punished by God for the wrong they've committed. And so the question is, what had Edom done? And the answer is nothing. They did nothing. And that's the point. Verse 10 mentions an action because of the violence done to your brother Jacob. Shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off forever. The particular horror of Edom's action is that they were performed against those who are related to them. They, were, they are mentioned in this book as participating in the invasion of Judah, but not in the sense that they invaded or attacked Judah, but they sinned against them by their lack of action, their lack of brotherhood, 
their lack of protection for their little brother. They are being accused of their unbrotherliness. For in verse 11, the prophet says, on the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, the prophet says, you were like them. What is happening is that Judah is being invaded and they observed Judah's plight and invasion from other nations, from strangers, and they did nothing. They stood aloof. And in verses 12 through 14, look at the eight do nots. Do not gloat over the day of your brother and the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand in the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. Do you see the sin of Edom? Edom was taking advantage of Judah's misfortune, of Judah's mistreatment, their pride, their improper attitude towards their brother to the north is the reason for God's judgment. Instead of treating Judah as a brother, they instead treated him like a stranger. So the two sins in verses 1 through 14, the sin of pride and the sin of unbrotherliness, not showing pity to the helpless. You might be thinking, those sins don't sound that bad. That's better than an invasion. It's better than overt brutality. It sounds so much better than thievery or adultery or murder or slander. I mean, just think about it this way. Just imagine how this sounds when we describe two different people referring to, one another, to, uh, to another person. Someone says, he is a good man, but he's proud. Such a remark hardly strikes our ears as inappropriate or shocking we are all too willing to admit that goodness and pride may be companions within the same life or the same person. But consider the remark, he is a good man, but he's a thief. Immediately, our moral sensibilities are outraged. A man cannot be at the same time good and a thief. Certainly, pride cannot be as bad as stealing. But this is the sin that Edom is condemned of committing. Or imagine the sin of unbrotherliness. It is easier to condemn the actions of a person than his or her inactions. But the prophet says, you were like one of them. 
it takes us way back. And again, when we read through the book of Obadiah, it has us going back and thumbing our way to the very first book of the Old Testament. In the book of Genesis, we look at Abraham and we look at Isaac and then we look at the two sons of, of Esau and Jacob. But it also has us going backwards and looking at the first two brothers, Cain and Abel. The first example of unbrotherly love, unbrotherly conduct. When God comes to Cain demanding, where is your brother Abel? Cain attempts to stand aloof by saying, am I my brother's keeper? And yet this is exactly what Edom was doing. They were just minding their own business. And we kind of expect others to mind their own business as well. But you see, if the scriptures teach us anything, it teaches us where you and I can help, we must help. Where you and I can encourage, we must encourage. Where you and I can defend, we must defend. For you see, when you read the scriptures, the sins of commission, the sins that we actually commit, those sins that we uh, knowingly and willingly participate in, are just as great as the sins of omission, those things that we fail to do. You see, because when you read through this, the, the line or the distinction between action and intent is almost obliterated. There's no line. It's the same thing. And again, Jesus will say this in his teachings, in the Gospels, that if you've thought about adultery, you've committed adultery. If you've thought about murder, if you've had anger towards someone, you've committed murder to the third degree. And what Obadiah does is he, he says there's no real distinction between action and intent. You see, because attitudes, the same thing as physical violence. And that's why the prophet says, the violence done to your brother, uh, to your, to your brother Jacob, you were like one of them. You know, it's such a hard message, and I don't, I love to water it down just a little bit. I, I, I don't know how to do it. But the prophet seems to be saying, you know, we, we say we know it. And we say we know it and we don't do it. He says it's the same thing as not knowing at all. There's this real blurry line between action and intent. For you see, God keeps us accountable not only for what we have done, but for those things that we haven't. Certainly, we can all come to the Ten Commandments and say, I've never committed adultery. I've never committed murder. I've never stolen anything. I've never been, right? I mean, I, I've never done these things, but... I mean, isn't it so strange that uh, Jesus hangs the, old, the whole Old Testament law on, uh, he says, the, on these two commandments, 
to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And he says, in the second, to love your neighbor as yourself. And again, it's fascinating to me that, again, just because we haven't done something bad doesn't necessarily mean that we've done something good. The sin of pride and the sin of unbrotherliness are sins in direct violation of the greatest commandments. And the second, for when we fail to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, with everything we have, haven't we committed a sin against God? And if we have not loved our neighbor as ourselves, haven't we committed a sin against our neighbor? And this is hard teaching. I mean, this is difficult teaching. Again, to teach uh, the, one of the... Uh, one man came up to Jesus and said, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. He says, This is the great and first commandment. And second is like it. You shall love, the, uh, love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments depend, he says, on all the law. And he says, and if he could say it, he, said, he would say, and Obadiah. But he says, and all the prophets. You know, the church is really good, I think, and this is a, a commentary not just on the church, but as I look at my own personal life, um, the church is really good. I'm really good at masking the pride of my own heart by those things that I've never done. I've never And it's so strange because when you look at the law and you look at it as a checklist of, of how good you are, then you've misread the law. And when you see the law and it, it, it opens up like a mirror and you see all those places that you fall short. Have I worshiped God for who he is? Have I loved my neighbor as myself. When I see someone in need, does it move me to compassion? Because those things that we fail to do are just as damning as the ones we do. Seven pages of a, of a difficult book. But we cannot stop there. We cannot stop at just the pronouncements of judgment. For if we look closely, you'll find the gospel there in the minor prophets. Just like you would when you get to the New Testament. For in the minor prophets, and particularly in the book of Joel. He condemns Edom, and he begins to detail for us how those who are struck down will be lifted up, and those who are arrogant and prideful and do not do as they're supposed to will be struck down. Again, there's this reversal that we find in the book of Obadiah, and, and the gospel story is the same kind of reversal story that we need. 
For in the gospel story, God knowing that we cannot and we could not ever fulfill the law perfectly, the do nots as well as the thou shalts, provides for us one who kept the law perfectly, who obeyed. And the text tells us that he obeyed his father perfectly. In Philippians chapter 2, it tells us about the ultimate fulfillment, the anti-Edom. Humility. It says that Jesus emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. Being found in the likeness of men, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The opposite of pride, that he would sacrifice his own life, his own body, his own reputation, and he would die a death, as the text tells us in Philippians 2, to the point of death, even death on a cross. True love that takes on action. He did not just stand by, he took it upon himself and he carried the weight of our sins, the, the sins that we commit every single day, every single moment. And, and Christ, he, as the perfect sacrifice and the substitute for our sins, hung there on the cross for our sake. 